the Jesus we're talking about here, who is with us and is not regulated by the registers of human ideology, the, the harmful human harmful ideology of human beings. Not registered by that. Can't because that registry, that process seeks to own the world and name it and own it. You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna. And this is Inverse. I can read it from the New Living Translation. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you a little bit about why I chose that passage, though. Um, For one, it's... It's one of the most explicit teachings that Jesus gives about love. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Um, it is the most explicit. And some scholars connect this passage um, to Jesus' teachings about be perfect. Mm-hmm. And the, right. the, the, the word that he uses there for perfect right. is not... Uh, moral and moral perfection. It's mm-hmm. teleos, which is like be complete. Right. That's right. Be, be complete, which has more in mind of of of, um, of being open, mm. being open, being open to others. Be open. Be complete, as your um, Father in heaven is complete. Mm. Um, and then. As an, ex- as an example of what being complete means, scholars connect this story to that reading, to that commandment. So um, Luke 10, beginning in 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to Jesus to test Jesus. Again, oh, let me go to NLT. On one day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? This is the faith question. Mm -hmm. This is the question. You had one question to ask God in the flesh. (laughs) (laughs) What would that question be? This lawyer, this person whose job it was to know scripture, asks this question. What should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? In other words, how do you read your Bible? What do, you, what, do you, what do you get from this? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I like to encapsulate this question and this response in the moment that I have in the classroom with students. Mm-hmm. You just sign a book. They come back to talk about the book. I ask them, so what did the book say? Tell us the argument in the book. One might, one might say that, of course, the Bible has lots of different things that it says, lots of different arguments, and, there, and there's, there's contradiction. Mm. But in g- the gist of it, mm-hmm. the gist of it, the law, the prophecy, the wisdom, the poetry, what is this thing saying to you? And this lawyer, whose responsibility it is to know the scripture and to interpret it for the people, says, it basically can be summed up on these commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you'll live. The man wanting to justify his question, his actions, 
questioning Jesus this way, pulls out his most potent weapon, mm. the most significant theological question that he could bring to bear in this moment to save himself from the foolishness of having been, having asked, tested, tested Jesus with this question. And who is my neighbor? Mm. Latent in that question is, a, is, a, is another question. Who can I exclude? Mm-hmm. Right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this question demonic. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't mince words. It's, it's, this is from Satan. Yeah. It puts us back in the situation in the garden in which the serpent asks, did God really say? Because it's not so clear, then there's no expectation that I would actually do this. Mm-hmm. It's demonic. It places you into a context in which you can get behind what God said and try and seek the mind of what God is actually thinking to selfish to, to, to nuance it to be selfish to be to, to practice some sophistry with what the commandments say. Hmm. So Jesus replies with a the story then. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and here I'll just read without commentary. Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there. Some translations say a Levite walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. When he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil, wine, and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher, Then this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked, the man man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, I'll go and do the same. All right. Mm. Talk about that. Yeah, we'll talk about that. We'll get, we'll come back to this, but uh, before we do that, we want to really dive into some of your story. And so yeah. um, can you share a little bit about um, when you remember first encountering the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Christian scriptures, and did it turn your world upside down or was it used to prop the world uh, right side up? It's status quo, basically. How, how, how did you experience encountering those scriptures in those early years? And, and Reggie, since you're a professor, we, we won't make it easy for you. Um, we'd love to hear you do that personally, but we'd also, you're a Bonhoeffer scholar. Um, we'd love to hear you reflect on your personal journey and Bonhoeffer's journey in terms of uh, when the scriptures started to become something that turned his world upside down instead of propping up what, being a part of a privileged class in Germany uh, meant for him. 
Yeah, so reading our narratives parallel. Because uh, let me tell you first about my own. I think there Please, is yeah. something to say that would speak to both of them. I was raised in the church. Raised. I mean, I was what? I may have been judging by the house we were living in, in my memory, four, maybe five, when my mom had us, my me and my two brothers and one of three uh, boys born to my mother, kneel and pray to accept Jesus in our hearts. Hmm. And I just remember thinking, how does he get in there? Right. Is he going <laughs> to hurt? Um, you know, and she said, no, he doesn't hurt you. He um, helps you live the way God wants, and he forgives you. So he's, he's helpful in there. But that's not always true. Some interpretations of Jesus actually hurt your heart. Some ways that you engage Jesus or that society engaged Jesus hurts people's hearts. Mm-hmm. When I was in the third grade, I was introduced to language about me being black that I was that was just, just threw me. I was um, the only black kid at this brand new elementary school opened up in San Ramon, California, Walt Disney Elementary School. Um, and mom moved, I mean, my parents moved to San Ramon, she put me into school. It was a terrible experience. I spent mm-hmm. second and third grade there. And this is where the scriptures first hit my memory. It was through pain. Mm-hmm. We were attending Shiloh Christian, what was Shiloh Christian Fellowship in Oakland. They've changed the name several times. I think it's like Shiloh Church. It's a conservative um, evangelical church in Oakland, California. Um, and I remember Brother Cook teaching Sunday school. I used to like going to Sunday school, teaching from the final graph, you know, those boards, <laughs> um, about, um, turn the cheek. It is, this was, a, this was a lesson on forgiveness, turn the cheek and forgive seven times 70. And here I am at like eight or nine years old, trying to take that seriously. But to take that seriously as a black kid in a, a primarily white environment means something concrete. Yeah. I had to put up with these white kids, right. calling me the N-word and spirit chucker and you were a slave and all this stuff. And I'm forgetting to I'm trying, I'm actually trying to pre- practice this scripture in the face of Scott um, and Joshua. I remember the boy's name saying this thing, saying wow. stuff to me. And one of them made made a um, made up an excuse to to um, jump me on the way home, and I did not fight back. I could have defended myself very well against these mm-hmm. kids. I didn't fight back. It took me until my adult years to forgive myself for not doing that, for not wow. fighting back. Yeah, and that was in an, that was an effort to do what the Bible said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that I remember that. Plainly, and it actually it hurt me mm, yeah. trying to trying to forgive seven times seventy and turn the other cheek while these um, race these kids were coming to school really telling me what their parents said about black people. Mm. Um, so I mean, it, it's important. I'm coming from a perspective of somebody who is historically harmed by society's ideology of human difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is coming to the Bible as somebody who is historically privileged 
by that same Bible. Right. You know, he is someone from the authority structure that the society is made for. He's he is the one for whom society is being set up. But he goes into Harlem and is reading the scripture from those people, from the perspective of those people who are like me, who are not yeah. um, socially privileged by it, um, seeing society from another uh, perspective in the United States. Um, prior to that time, he's precocious, really brilliant. Fairly, not fairly, but arrogant. Mm -hmm. um, right. Scholar, you know, he's 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 got his stuff together. Right. Um, but that experience there in New York brought something to him. Now, prior to that, he had in, he was interpreting Christian life in concrete ways, not as something that you can decide beforehand um, and slap on life like a Band-Aid. It's dynamic, morality, life together, faith. These things are all dynamic. They mm -hmm. happen in the moment. You, you don't have laws to obey. And to interpret the Sermon on the Mount as though we're supposed to actually do that stuff comprises a set of laws or something. Mm -hmm. That's not how faith works. Yeah. But then after, after New York, the Sermon on the Mount becomes something concrete. His faith becomes something much more serious. He becomes this pious figure. And, you know, I mean, I argue that that's both seen from the perspective of people who are harmed by society's ideologies, mm -hmm. in addition to this pastor, a friend of his, this French pastor who said, Jesus means that stuff for you. To do. He means for you to do that stuff. Yeah. That was there. That's right. Yeah, Lasser. Yeah, Jean Yeah, but he still he spends his life trying to figure out what that means to follow the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. And when he wrote, and when he wrote discipleship, I would say he needed a, he needed a little bit more guidance on that. Yep. But he's still trying to take it very seriously. Right. In the same way, Reggie, that I, I hear you know that that picture of you as a kid, eight nine years old and being jumped by two other kids, you know their name and, and it's a setup and and seeking to be sincere. Um, and then Bonhoeffer's own sincerity around the seminar. And often the story is told that he's got this French mate at Union Theological Seminary and then he realises that Sermon on Mount is a thing. Um, but Bonhoeffer and his French mate can be lifted out of his experience of Abyssinian Baptist Church and Reverend Powell's sermons and actually experiencing for the first time in his life a people that love one another for whom the Sermon on the Mount isn't an abstract theological discussion to be had in a classroom but is a practice of survival and what thriving can look like while your life is still threatened even during the Great Depression where there's all so much already stacked against you. Um, what does it mean, Reggie, to... Um, uh, it, you know, Bonhoeffer scholars debate back and forward. What what was that trip overseas? You know, was it Spain? Was it England? Uh, was it the US? Like, which one of these experiences um, that turned Bonhoeffer's life upside down? Um, what, what I'm so impressed by your work and why I think it's so seminal and important, particularly at this moment, 
is, um, and I love the title of the, the book as well, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. It's, um, uh, I, I would love to hear you, and Drew's kind of going, Jared, the script, st stick to the, <laughs> the inverse podcast. Well, I, I'm jumping ahead. I'm just so excited. Yeah, that's right. I'm so excited about, um, <laughs> because the next question that we traditionally ask um, our guests is, uh, was the scripture something that propped the world up as it is or um, uh, turned the world upside down? Um, I love how you provide the black church experience, uh, this prophetic community of, of practice uh, as the thing that turned Bonhoeffer's world upside down and what that offers for both, um, uh, you know, in a Christianity that is still deeply tied to white supremacy as Bonhoeffer's was that we experience in Australia and the US. Uh, that, that stuff, um, we swim in it. Right. Right. So true. One could say upside down. One could say right side up. One could say inside <laughs> out. Um, but let's talk about the language of the black Christ for a moment. Mm. Um, but to talk about the language of the black Christ, you need to understand um you need to understand what is what is being recalibrated, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Okay. White Christ is the presence of something in society that is recent in the world. White Christ mm. is a projection from a character who's an ideal, not an actual figure but an avatar for people who are setting up society in the Western world for themselves, for, um, for the benefit of a community that they would want, you might say. It's mm -hmm. a longing. It's the ideal community populated with an ideal citizen. Okay, This white Christ becomes an avatar. He is aesthetic representation of the ideal person, the ideal human. Doesn't mm. actually exist. He is the God-man who is a fetish of a racial or a cultural longing. Wow. He speaks over creation with his own word, making humankind in his image. This is a God-man who distorts what God has made. Red, yellow, black, and white don't actually exist. They mm. come into being as this figure speaks them into being. Wow. Prior to encounter with Europeans, the, the Yoruba, the Iwe, the Mende, mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, the, 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 um, the Ashanti, the Aquapon, um, had a different identity. They encounter Europeans in the practice of the transatlantic slave trade, and they're brought into a whole new reality. Wow. Their identity is taken from their communities, their cultures, their, their, the land, and placed on their skin, and they become Negro. In the process of making them Negro, of, of them being Negro, actually something else is being created. That's white people. Yes. It's a creation of white people. But the, you got to have this negative outgroup distortion, the Negro, who holds the whole identity in place like an anchor. Hmm. This is an argument for a financially incentivized, it's an, it, what I would say is yeah. financially incentivized anthropology. Wow. 
Um, this is the Western world. It encompasses not just the United States, but mm. it encompasses the, the, the imperial powers in Europe and in Australia. Yes. As, yeah. as an outpost so, of European imperial powers. Yeah, exactly. As a settler colony. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so anywhere that colonialism has lingered or left its mark, you have this continued, um, the, the continued presence of this ideology and its central sacred figure is Jesus, the white Christ. And you know, this, this figure, this white Christ is what we, what, um, my friend Jay Cameron Carter describes as a modern iteration of those um, classical heresies, mm. where as 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 it pertains to Jesus, um, to the body, he's Jewish, but Jew has been placed in a racial care, a racial hierarchy in the West. Mm. Right. As it pertains to his body, he's Jewish. As it pertains to the religion, he's a cultural religious representation of the West, a mm. fetish of the best of us. The idea of him is white. Mm. Right. It, it fits together a bit like the ancient Apollinarian or Nestorian heresies. Mm -hmm. If you know the Apollo, you know uh, the Apollinarian heresies, for example, the mind is divine and the body is human. They don't actually come together as one. Yeah. You've got this divine figure in the mind driving the body around. It's, it's a docetic or Gnostic heresy. He never really becomes human. Right. You know, um, like the, the um, Chalcedonian um, creed says, fully human, fully divine. Fully divine. Uh -huh. but, a, but a white Jesus is not embodied. To pay attention to the body is to do something very different. They yes. don't do that. They can't do that. Because to pay attention to the body is to recognize that the Jew that you placed in a racial hierarchy is actually um, is actually the people through whom the, the Savior comes. Hmm. And, you know, Jews are the first black people in Europe and black people are the first Jews in the United States. As it comes, as, as a friend of mine says. Yeah, say that again, Reggie. That, that's phenomenal. Yeah, that, that Jews are the first black people in Europe. Hmm. The, the, the folks who were chased from community to community, pariah, hated, persecuted, and black people are Jews in the United States, to some degree, linking our yep. common, our, 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 the persecutions together. Yes. You know, there's yep. some, there's, there's some, there's some strength, some validity to that. My, I get that. That's not my own word. It's my friend, Stephen Ray from um, Chicago Theological Seminary. Yeah. Uh, I agree with him. It, it's, it's incredible. Um, and oh, where I'd love for us to travel some, uh, 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 Drew is setting us up with another question, but that, that whole thing of when it comes to Bonhoeffer's Jesus, did he actually get to uh, a black Jesus? Like, I think of, I think of, early womanist scholars like uh, Dr. Gray and her talk of um, the, the black woman's Jesus and white women's Christ. Um, and uh, the Susanna Heschel will talk about the, the Aryan Christ. And right. of course he's pushing back against that and his experience of a community that actually loves one another that's held together uh, and turns the world upside down or inside out, as you said, or uh, right side up. Um, 
is an experience of um, an embodied Christ in an embodied people. Um, so I, I would love to get to that sense of um, did Bonhoeffer get there and what does that mean for Bonhoeffer scholarship at this moment? Um, but, Drew, I, yeah. I, will, I will behave, I will harness my ADD, and well, I'll well, let me say something else yeah, a little. I, I was because yeah. I needed to. I needed to finish to this point here to yeah. say right side up is the white Christ is actually is not the one on the cross outside of Jerusalem, right? Hung on the cross right. outside of Jerusalem. That's not the white Christ. The white Christ, to borrow a little bit from Cone, um, the representative of white racist Christianity in the Western world is not the savior, the Jewish savior on the cross outside of Jerusalem, yeah. But black people on crosses as ritual sacrifices for the sacred of, for, for sacred white space, for cleansing white yes. space. Yeah. The bodies become impurities. Um, and they sacrifice these people for the white sacred space that they love. Now see, black, uh, uh, so black Jesus is recognizing a human who is outside of the registers of racialization. This is not I mean, to get into blackness studies for a moment here, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but there's a black that's created by white in the process of racialization. Mm. Okay, that's the Negro. But then there's another black that's not captured. Mm -hmm. It's not regulated. That's a complete otherness. It's outside of those registers. Mm. This is the space that can't be articulated within the registers of race. Mm -hmm. breaking in from the outside also coming in from within because that is there God is there in the presence with us something very different and other than you might say it's jazz yeah. to the classical music coming out of Europe mm -hmm. around an ideology of difference mm -hmm. something completely different that's the Jesus we're talking about here who is with us and is not regulated by the registers of human ideology, the, the harmful human harmful ideology of human difference, not mm. registered by that. Can't because that registry, that process seeks to own the world and name it and own it. But this one can't be articulate, can't be owned, can't be regulated. You can't put the gospel in a box. It breaks the seams, breaks those boundaries. Yeah, so thinking about, and, and again, we can think about your own life and also Bonhoeffer's as well. But um, so obviously, you know, this is a, we, we play with one, our guest's biography, but also then scripture. Yeah. So thinking about like your own story, your own experience, um, what out of your own experience shapes your own hermeneutics, your own lens for reading scripture? And what might yeah. that be like if you were to like gift? that kind of express that to our guests, like what might be the, the from your story and experience, um, the lens that you might want to offer and invite other people to consider as they engage scripture? Yeah, well, let's see here. Maybe just tell a little of my story. So um, after that harmful experience in school, there was still, there was something that I, that had touched me that made me want to follow the Bible and scripture. Um, in the gospel, um, you know, as best as I could when I was a child, something was really was was very real there for me. Um, uh, family was uh, family went through some transitions and stopped going to church. Um, but when I was a senior in high school, 
I started longing for that again and just started just actually was praying that God would bring me back to a church. Met this guy who was a basketball player at a small junior college um, in San Francisco. Started hanging around him. He was 28. I was 17. And 28 seems like really young to me. He was really young to me. Now, when I was 17, I was like, this guy's like my dad. Right. Um, And um, he was important to me. I went to the junior college that he went to. I started going to church where he went. I was longing for that kind of structure, longing for that kind of connection again. I ended up in evangelical spaces because that's product- that was a very big representation of the gospel in California, where I was from. But I was never attached to the label evangelical. That stuff never really meant anything. I didn't even really know what it was. I was just trying to be Christian. That's it. And so that was present for me. Um, but I, I went to I went to a black evangelical church in San Francisco. From there, I mean, I was recruited by a different a number of different colleges out of a junior college. Um, I went to a junior college because my because uh, I, I I didn't I was told that I wasn't college material. Um, so I just went to this junior college and then ended up going to a Christian college in Santa Barbara. Um, and at this white evangelical Christian college, there is a representation of theology, is a representation of Bible scholars. On the syllabi, I would say, I mean, I use, I, I, I use the language of Jim Crow syllabi, wow. whites only, you know, yeah. the whole religious, I mean, I was a theology major, theology and church history, and everything is spoken of by the giants in the field, quote, unquote, the giants uh-huh. in the field. Yeah. And so when you, when you can repeat the sounds of these people that these people have made, you're educated to know the world from a perspective. Mm-hmm. means that you're educated. And I've, and it wasn't until, truthfully, my first year in a PhD program that I was shaken loose from that. Wow. Shaken loose from the, from the idea that the giants in the field that demonstrate that you are educated are actually speaking from a perspective. Didn't even occur to me until then. And you know, I know funny thing how it occurred to me. I was sure that, that I was led into that doctoral program because they were trying to diversify it. Mm. Nobody said that to me. It was just what I believed. Yeah. And I remember making up a, an excuse to say that to my um, doctor father, my, I met my um, doctoral mentor, Glenn Stassen, the late Glenn Stassen. Mm. Love him dearly. Mm. I remember making up an excuse to say that to him. And he, um, he, he was walking upstairs when I said it. I remember the moment. He was walking upstairs to his office in a building at Fuller Seminary. And he stopped on the stairs and he said, no. As if, like, he, I mean, he was, his body language said, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he stopped and said, no, that's not true. You came highly recommended. When I got that recommendation letter, I wanted to admit you immediately, but I had to go through the the standard process. And also, you've had all of the same assignments as everybody else has in this program all year long. And I wasn't any easier on you with the grading, remember? I mean, he he stopped, took that really seriously and just um, shocked me with it. And it took me a moment afterwards. I mean, I was startled by that. And I thought, where did I get that from? Where did I get that from? Nobody said it specifically, 
but it was the way the world was interpreted to me yes. right. Right. that said that about my actual, my place in that world. Yeah. The way that we read scripture says the same thing about concepts of the sacred. Yeah. About yeah. sin. Yes. Right. You know, from certain perspectives, um, the concept of salvation, you know, of God's work in the world, of the mission of the church, right. from certain perspectives that mean something specific. Um, that, that's, so uh, for salvation, you know, salvation as a concept that speaks about your eternal soul and not your physical existence in a, an oppressive, right. harmful society. That's right. Mm. You know, um, but for people who fear for their lives, yes, being hurt, being being told the good news about life abundantly, mm-hmm. you know, what what does that mean to me in this body yeah. in this world? That's right. It wasn't until that first year in that doctoral program that I realized nobody had actually said that, but they've been saying it to me for years. Wow. Right. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I resonate yeah. with that. Um, just an, uh, on a personal level, in terms of just the, even thinking about me going through the PhD program, I just resonate with so much of what you just said. And it's not because anybody said it, right? It's, it's the unstated but assumed and normative um, experience oh, yeah. with the world, how it interprets everything, right? And so, mm. yeah, that's really powerful. But to then to yeah. connect that to how we engage scripture. Um, and, and who gets to interpret it and how, right, mm-hmm. what is assumed about these texts. Um, that's really, yeah, important. They wouldn't dare tell you that directly. No, they but they're never. telling you that with every time they put that syllabus together. That's mm. right. And the structure of the academy, they're certainly, they certainly mean it. And they will that's think right. that when they see your body there. Yeah. You're there because of right. affirmative action. Right. You took the place of an otherwise more qualified candidate because we're trying right. to diversify, which Whoa. is which is the way that whiteness teaches white people to think. The world right. is theirs. It's theirs. They inherit it. Right. Everything related to heaven and earth. It's all huh. about and for them. Yeah. Right. Right. That's that white Jesus stuff. Yes. Yep. And it's fascinating even in terms of the text that you've chosen, Reggie. Um, as you were saying that, I was even thinking about, you know, the, the, the subtitles that are placed in our scriptures that aren't really there. The, this um, parable of a, a good Samaritan, and this uh, this has just suddenly been turned with that one word into morality play. No longer is this about um, uh, different ethnicities and their being on the underside of oppression and how they respond to oppression and uh, one people group siding up with the people who have conquered their land and the other saying no way and we're going to have nothing to do with you and uh, you know one chapter earlier we have uh, um, Jesus disciples uh, walking through their side of town and them going we're not down with this Jesus thing and their response is Elijah's a good model should we nuke him should we call down fire? Should we, <laughs> like I got a, I got a Bible verse I got a biblical precedent let's let's uh, um, and instead Jesus calls to mind this this hated other but even in the way that we talk about this text in light of what you're saying whom we assume um the the characters on the final graph what color 
they are says so much about um, uh, the messages that we've internalised um, uh, because how race has read us e even before we've read any of these texts, the assumptions that we bring to this text. So true. R Reggie, would you um, talk us through this particular text of this hated Samaritan that we call good and how this isn't a morality play but this is actually about the mercy that does turn our world upside down? A holiness or a, uh, in Matthew's gospel, a perfection, um, uh, or, or here in Luke, a, a compassion, a mercy, um, which is holiness, which is um, dangerous in who it doesn't exclude, um, but in not ways that are nice and focus on unity and uh, talk about reconciliation without talking about reparations. <laughs> um, would you open this text up for us in such ways that um, uh, we can see the Nazarene and not some nice white Jesus who is a softer form of the kind of things that animate larger society and in that way, like, keep us from the gospel. Yeah. Well, that's a lofty task that you just laid before me. Let's see what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see what I can do. Uh, first of all, um, the lawyer, Let's say the. It's important to recognize, first of all, for your your average lay person, mm. that the law of the land is not separate from the scripture, right. in this context. Yeah. Right. So this lawyer is somebody who knows the Bible well because this is the political ordinance. Like the this is this is the constitution of the country. So is the is the is the law. So he's interpreting that. Um, who do I get to exclude? The Samaritan half-breed um, is probably the closest thing that we have to a racialized other in, the, in Scripture. Okay. And as he opens up this story, this story, a person going from Jerusalem to Jericho, starting in, uh, in the, an important holy Jewish city, Mm. The he, the people hearing the narrative will identify with him. Goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I actually stood in Jerusalem and um, on the Mount of Olives looking at Jericho. Um, it's Jerusalem's higher, Jericho's down. Mm. And it's uh, this one, this road is Martin Luther King Jr. tells the story. It's a windy mm -hmm. road. It was a, it's a dangerous road. Mm. Um, so the man falls among, falls among thieves. This is probably something common as well. What happens next is probably not common. That the priest, seeing one of his own, fallen and harmed and near death, and moves around him. Hmm. Hmm. And then the Levite, the NIV, the NLT translates as a temple a servant, which is, that's the Levites were in the, in the Mosaic law, in the Mosaic mm -hmm. scripture, um, priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. Okay. Um, and they end up coming also, they end up more specifically coming from Aaron's, from Aaron's um, lineage. Mm -hmm. So the priest was from, from, from Aaron, the Levites also work at the temple, but they're grounds, groundskeepers type people. Okay. But these, these are two people associated with the temple, those holy 
place in Judaism. And if care for others is related to your faith, especially these people being amongst the most, uh, um, associated with the most holiest place, if care, concern for others is a part of the faith, then clearly these two failed. Right. They yeah. failed. Yeah. Okay. This is a part of the, of the lesson. Mm. The most cherished portions of your faith, of your religion, don't always follow through with what is most important. Mm. And the one you wouldn't be, you'd be surprised who does is this despised other. Yeah. He comes along and he picks up where the people who are, who are maybe, um, who represent what you believe your faith should have us representing. And where is that today, for example, when you say, <laughs> if this, if, 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 if we can get, if we can, if we could just get the, the country Christian again. Uh, bring it home, man. Again, bring it home. Again. Mm-hmm. If we could just get it Christian again. If we could just get people who are representative of the faith in high places. Mm. Right, right. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> where have we heard that before? We got mm. Christians in the White House. We got Christians right. coming to Washington on a regular basis. When they're, right. uh, yeah, on their way to Washington, they're walking around bodies. Mm. Wow. So I mean, if but they do want to make Israel great again. They make yes, yes, yes. They're on their way to the make Israel great again rally. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make Israel great again rally. Make make Israel great again rally. So the despised Samaritan sees him and does not avert his eyes. Um. This is this. Uh, Glenn talks about this as describing what justice means. Oh. Sasson does. Yeah. yeah. That justice and love are two sides of the same coin. And he called this passage, he called, he, in, in interpreting what agape, the most commonly used word for God's activity in the world, means, he does it by un, un, unpacking this passage. Mm-hmm. Agape is delivering love. Love that delivers from oppression and bondage. He sees yes. with compassion. He does the things that cause for deliverance. He doesn't just see, look at him and have compassion for him and go down and lay and die with him. He does something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> compassion means that you do something. Yeah. Okay. Um, he, he, nine times, he, I mean, there's nine different things there. Then he brings them to the community of the, and brings back in the community. Mm. Okay, with freedom and freedom and responsibility for the future, not just a, an accoutrement in the community, but people wow. with responsibility for the well-being of the community. Historically, white people have demanded that they are the only ones who are commanding, who are in in in, or, in um in a response in power, mm-hmm. taking authority of the community. The Samaritan brings this person in with freedom and responsibility for the community for the future. And then this last one is really fascinating, too. By putting a despised Samaritan in the main position in this narrative, yes, he's telling, speaking to Jewish people, right. to people who practice um, exclusion. Hmm. What, if the, what if the kingdom is populated with people that you can't stand to be around? <laughs> Yeah. What if the kingdom is populated by people who you reject on a regular basis? Because the, the, the lawyer says, when Jesus says, who was neighbor to him? The lawyer says, 
the one who showed compassion. Can't fix his mouth to say the Samaritan. I can't get yes. it out of his mouth. Wow. Can't get those words out of his mouth. But what's also interesting about this, and there's, a, there's another thing. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about this passage. Hmm. The lawyer says, the, law, the, the lawyer says, um, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, um, who was neighbor to the man? Not like the man was saying, who's my neighbor? He's saying, who was neighbor to him? Right. So the, the, the Jewish man laying in the ditch would say, who is my neighbor? And Bonhoeffer points it in another direction. As a verb, so to speak, who was neighbor to him. Right. Not who does he get to count as his neighbor, but who was neighbor to him. Mm. And the point of that is this. It's not what, it's not who counts as your neighbor, meaning who lives next to you, who you're responsible for. You are the neighbor. Yeah. You are the one who is responsible. Not who counts towards you. You are always the neighbor to the person right. whom you encounter. Right. The command is to be neighborly. Yes. The command then might say then, my, th this command says that hospitality is core to your eternal salvation. Yes. The practices of hospitality are core to your eternal salvation. Even if it means inviting in a strange Australian. <laughs> inviting in a strange Australian. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked, you clothed me. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was in prison, and you visited me. Yeah. You know, these things. Those who didn't do that went to eternal damnation. And Reggie, like to, to go back to Bonhoeffer's own journey down this dangerous road, um, he's sitting under the teaching of Rev Powell and hearing him talking about uh, the hungry God, the naked God. Right. Would you lift up um, uh, those stories, which I just think are so rich that you talk about in yeah. Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus? Yeah, so Powell is driving along in his really nice beautiful car that this wealthy congregation bought to him that he didn't want and the great depression is happening this is 1930 and he's really he's frustrated he's in this nice car he's really he's he's, he's maybe even somewhat embarrassed by it I'm, I'm going to guess um and he's seeing this poverty play out and as the story goes as the saying goes when white america gets a cold black america gets pneumonia mm -hmm. I mean, we're watching it right now with COVID-19. The, right. the demographic hardest hit yes. is black people. Yep. Okay. So white America gets a cold, black America gets pneumonia. We're talking, we're in the context of the Great Depression. Harlem is ravaged. He says, God, why don't you do something? While later he says he's asleep. And he hears while he's sleeping, Powell, why don't you do something? Wow. As any good pastor would do, he preaches the sermon series. <laughs> in response yes, to that command he preaches a sermon series the hungry god and the naked god he takes him from matthew 25 i was uh, i was hungry and you gave me something to eat thirsty and you gave me something to drink and this is during bonhoeffer's time in new york and um i found an excerpt from that sermon it took me forever and the uh, um harlem branch of the new york public library in the new amsterdam news it was an excerpt and powell says in the sermon we feel we feed God when we feed our hungry neighbor. Right. We give clothes to God when we're giving clothes to our hungry neighbor. 
there, this is the point here. It's important to see. There's something very concrete in the way in which you live out your faith. When you live out the command, love your neighbor as yourself. It's not in words. Um, it is in concrete actions that pay attention to the embodied value of that person that you encounter. Now, the story of identity in the Western world will tell you something about that person before you meet them. You know, this is what happens when, you know, um, their brother Elijah was slammed um, and killed by those officers. They believed they knew something about that young man before they met him. But then we, his story is something very different. He's very different than the story that race would tell them about him. Mm. Black young people don't get, kids don't get to be kids. Kids are regularly perceived as older than they actually are because of the narrative of race. Women don't get to be women, you know, because of the story of race. There was something that I was reading the other day that said that People can go through med school with the belief that black people have a higher pain tolerance and right. literally right. thicker skin. That's right. And so the medical system, the medical industry right. harms black people. We have a really precarious relationship to medical science, black people That's do. That's right. That's oh. right. You know, um, and, and these, these narratives that don't actually speak to embodied life of this demographic or other demographics. When love your neighbor as yourself would have you paying attention to the embodied reality of your neighbor, just as you know or expect that someone would do for you. But the the, the obstacles of this harmful, nefarious ideology don't allow that. And so rather than, I mean, people, I'm, I'm a social ethicist, rather than understanding Christian social ethics as helping us to determine how we can be good people, <laughs> which is a problem. Yeah, which is which is a problem. Um, right, looking at ourselves and trying to make ourselves good. Doctor, how I do we describe... become good Samaritans? That's the takeaway from the story. <laughs> right. Yeah. right, right, right. I, I, I'd rather even in this in the story in this narrative of the compassionate Samaritan, which Glenn says compassionate Samaritan, mm. which I like that narrative that that, that description of the story. Um, yeah. It's not so much about him being a good person. It's removing the obstacles that prevent us to be together in community. Yes. Yeah. Not making me a, a good moral individual, but how we as a collective body, as a collective people made in the image of God, as a, as a collective people loved by God, can actually have the community that we are supposed to. Mm. Yeah. That's the goal. That's the work of Christian social ethics. So yeah. I would describe it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. You, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, how King plays with this story, and he asks his questions. Right, he says he frames uh, hypothetically, of course, um, that what would happen to uh, yeah. the religious leaders. Right, he imagines that their question is, "What will happen to me if I stop to help this man?" Right. right, and then he says that yeah. the Samaritan story is flipped. What will happen to this man if I do not stop and help him? Right, and so flipping that. Right. But it just shifts the imagination for our relationship and our belonging with others, um, certainly, which I think kind of connects with what we're getting at, too. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It means means that you have to be able to see that that person's life has value 
in right. meaning. Yes. Right? And that that in an encounter with someone else's life, you have obligations. Right. Your obligations are not to yourself. The gospel is not fire insurance right. for you yes. to make sure that you got your stuff straight so that when you meet the maker right. after you die, you're gonna, he's right. going to check your paperwork and your theology to let you into heaven. Yeah. That is, right. That's not what this is. Right. Something related to your life right now in relationship right. to other people who are loved by God. Wow. Yeah. Even, Reggie, like the fact that um, uh, this bloody broken body by the side of the road, some of the cultural indicators that um, are used to other, like clothing, um, uh, the, the fact that they are disfigured, um, those things are removed and there's a there's a religious lens and, you know, the, the priest, the Levite and the Israelite is what people are expecting. That's that's the, um, right. uh, what, what is it, the, um, the butcher, the baker, the... Candlestick maker. <laughs> but they get the, the father, the son and the, like, there's a setup here yeah. and, and Jesus goes, right. Samaritan. And they're all like, what? We're what just asking, the, can we nuke what? them? Just a chapter back. Like, what? You're right. <laughs> what? Um, you don't um, mean the Samaritan. Oh and, and, pa- and part of of that hated um, other dynamic that Jesus is calling out amongst his own disciples <laughs> they've just walked yep. through there um and so he's like yep. this is a teachable moment not just for the young lawyer who's um uh, wanting to justify himself or, or maybe the um translation today would uh, uh wanting to show his wokeness uh, uh, yeah. to, <laughs> right you know um it, yeah. instead he he turns and he faces those who have already uh given up to follow him and i loved how you put it that uh, this is about a goodness which is not located in an individual but in a community. So goodness is something that happens between us, not in us. Like yeah. that was Bonhoeffer's experience um, uh, that he, he can take um, highfalutin continental um, uh, philosophy and theology and, and then actually experience it uh, amongst, um, uh, you, you know, Abyssinian was like one of the biggest church communities um, in in the US, but it's it's very right. diverse in terms of the people that are there. And even the dynamics of right. wanting to buy the pastor um, a, a car is about um, the pride of a community that actually um, our leaders are to be valued as well. Um, our leaders are to be celebrated as well. Our leaders are represented. There's a sense of usness even in the, conf- like, you know, and they're difficult dynamics when you're formed in capitalist societies like how, how to right. uh, navigate those things but i i just love that if this is say from a shallow kind of personalized morality into what it is to become a people of mercy that was bonhoeffer's own journey amongst the prophetic black church tradition and his exposure to it do you think he got to um what he experienced in harm uh, do, do do you think that uh or, or was the thinness of the res- resisting community in Germany and what they tried to do with the confessing uh, church and the underground seminary, um, th- that community and how it wasn't able to to hold, it, is that where he ends up joining, which is basically, I mean, secular is a poor descriptor, but it's not a religiously motivated maybe um, resistance that he finds himself a part of. Bonhoeffer's own journey in that and seeking a people with the same kind of well, uh, Stason would use the sociological term of thickness, that it was a community that had a 
a, a thickness to the experience. Um, there are so many in this moment, Reggie, I'm, I'm aware, who are experiencing the harmfulness of white theology. And instead of joining um, thicker communities um, with a Jesus that I could actually save, um, they're, uh, you know, moving away from uh, Christianity entirely. Would you speak to this moment, Bonhoeffer's journey, your own scholarship in that, and take it any which way you want? But um, th this is part of the reason why uh, your influence on, on me and why Drew and I are so keen to talk to you in, in this moment. I think he was moved in New York to see a community who didn't compartmentalize faith um, from daily routine in society. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a private faith and a public um, citizenship. Sure. In your private life, you, you are a Christian, but in your public life, you adhere to the dictates of the state. Right. Or your faith is just kind of a part of the culture, Protestant culture. Yeah. Culture Protestantism is what the way the way it was used. Everybody gets baptized. They have, you know, they get married in the church. They get baptized in the church. You, could, you know, catechism, this kind of stuff. And then you just live your life as a citizen of the state. I think he was really moved to see a people in New York whose entire lives were under the gospel. Mm. That helped to move him quite a bit. I think that's what brought about his read of the Sermon on the Mount differently. Yes. Because it was more than just a conversation between with two white guys in <laughs> New York. You know, I mean, he was having these conversations with people in, there were conversations in, in Germany, I'm sure. There were conversations about, I mean, his, his, um, his doctor father wanted him to do his habilitation, second dissertation on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but, but it, that's so, so he's, he has this personal experience there in New York. Um, you there still? Yeah, we are. Okay. Um, and on the edge of our seats. I, I am asking questions of him now that are, um, that pus that are puzzling for me with regards to who to the, the decisions that he made on the um, the second part of his life, I should say mm -hmm. towards the end, starting in 39, because he takes his faith very seriously when he gets back. He becomes a very pious person. He pours it all into the seminary at Finkenwalde, everything that he dreamt of, everything he put together at that point to help train pastors in the resisting church, the church that he said is the only one where you can actually be saved. Mm. where you could find salvation the only one not the state church not mm -hmm. the church that sides with the nazis but only this church is the one for salvation and he's given himself completely to it it's actually by 1933 okay he's been he's been back two years by 1933 he's willing to die right for that confessing church movement right he's willing to die for it and he's yeah. expecting that he's probably going to go to a concentration camp. Dachau is open in 1933. He's, he's assuming he may be going there. Mm. That is, as early as 1933. The question for us is why? Why would you give it all for the church struggle? Mm. He's arguing that the church, the church needs to, the church takes up physical presence on the earth. 
it is visible, manifest in the preaching, in the in the sacraments, and the and the in the in the um the visible confession of faith that we live in a concrete obedience to Christ. Mm-hmm. It's not something you compartmentalize in your private life. Okay. But you know, the fascinating thing is that church he was so moved by in New York was what started in what Albert Rabato described as the invisible institution. It you would not see it taking up physical manifestation on the slave plantation. It did that mm-hmm. in order to survive. Right. You know, and Harriet Tubman is one of its most prominent figures. She was doing that by night, right. plundering an economy, yeah. saving lives. Yeah, right. And, and she was, she was immoral. You know, she was mm. a rabble rouser. She was a yeah, lawbreaker. Yeah. yeah. You know, all of that connected to her faith. Yes. Her, her immorality, her, um. Her, her um, illegality was because yeah. she was a Christian oh, in a Christian nation. Mm. Yeah, you know they can't make sense of Harriet Tubman's God. That's right. Can't make wow. they can't make sense of her God, and and she was she she was a part of the invisible institution. I, I think of Dietrich, brother Dietrich, and I think um, why didn't he die saving lives? Mm-hmm. This is one of the. This is the question. I'm actually working on the second manuscript. Let's see. Why didn't he die in the process of smuggling Jews up? It was. Yeah. It's true that part of that he he did save. He saved 14 Jewish lives right. in a in a in a um and um and this thing called Operation Seven, and it was initially right. meant for seven. They ended up doubling 14 Jews. Right. And in the process of um of discovering Operation 7, one of his biographers says there was some information that there was uncovered that ended up leading in the direction of his imprisonment and his death. Yeah. But um, he, takes this, he takes this fight to the top when there were lots of other people at the time who were just smuggling people's, people out. Right. Why wasn't he one of them? Mm-hmm. His church struggle from really from 1932, really, no, 33, from 1933 to 1939, this whole period of struggle before he comes back to, to, to the United States is something that one might say characterizes a kind of Bonhoeffer. When he gets back in 1939, I mean, in 1930, by 19, until 1939, he was resisting even the minutia the very smallest the, the, the smallest things he was going to be consistent and resistant by night when he comes back in 1939 after agonizing over coming back he set his mind towards something else towards coup yeah. towards tyrannicide he set his mind towards that yeah gets involved with his brother-in-law in the german version of the cia right. and publicly gives the hitler salute Eberhard Becker's best friend is puzzled. What in the world, Dietrich? He says, put your hand up. Are you crazy? Mm. There are many, many things we're dying for. This salute is not one of them. 
we're going, he's going in another direction. Why not smuggle out Jews? Yeah. This is the thing I don't, and he's somebody who, he, again, he comes from privilege, from control. Yeah. Right. Yes. It's a, it's a yeah. yeah that... He comes from privilege, from control, from, from, from access. You know, yeah. he struggles with why some of the people in Finkenwalde are struggling with staying in that seminary because they don't have the kind of money he does. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't know where their paychecks are going to come from. And he's, right. he wishes that he could know the kind of want and need that they have so he could, he could, he could feel that. Mm-hmm. He has to try it. <laughs> wow. So. That's, that's interesting. I've always, which, I mean, maybe it resonates with some of what you're saying. I've seen, I often have said that I read Bonhoeffer not as someone who gets it all right, but someone who kind of in a lonely way is groping and trying to find Jesus along the way. But he's like, he's like in the dark yeah. almost. Is that a fear? Is that how you read him in some ways? Yeah, yeah. I, he is somebody who sincerely wants to follow Christ. Yeah. Yes. Right. And he gives his all to him. He's a very inspirational figure. And he, there are a number of things that he intuits, you know, yeah. He, he, he intuits this. He's got his finger on something, but he can't quite right. bring about the, he can't bring, quite deliver on that. Right. He can't almost quite there. deliver on it. Right. He's almost there, but right. he can't, can't quite deliver on it. And, be, be, and, and, and even what he does get, the language that he uses, the, the moves that he makes there are deeply inspiring. I swear. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've read bi- biographies of him over and over and over again. I've been, I've been to the concentration camps that he was held in the Buchenwald yeah. and ultimately yeah. killed at Flossenburg. And I am always moved. Yeah, always absolutely. deeply, deeply moved. Absolutely. Always moved. Yeah. Um, 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 I mean, he died as a young man um, and as a zealous, amazing young yeah. man who was an inspirational figure. Yeah. Um, but there are genuine serious questions that one may have of him yeah. i mean it goes without saying and i mean one may have said simply our friends with him at that time there's a lot of people stuck here yeah with all of your connections all over yeah. europe yeah that if you're going to risk your life you're going to expect to go to the concentration camp. Why not do it? Not to reform your country. Mm. Not yes. to reform the church. Mm. But to save their lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As many people were. There were lots of righteous Gentiles. People who are, whose names are now in Yad Vashem. And I got, because I'm working on this new manuscript, this is one of the books that I've purchased recently. Righteous Among the Nations. This is one volume, one volume of um, thousands of non-Jewish people who risked their lives, and some of them gave their lives in the practice of saving concrete lives. Not the church, not the nation, but multitude lives. Yeah. Lives. Reggie, one of the incredibly moving things for me and uh, I know that you've spent time on this continent, is that uh, when you go to, to Yad Vashem, uh, th- there is a, a tree uh, uh, for righteous Gentiles for William Cooper. Mm-hmm. Um, William Cooper, 
uh, you might not be able to uh, see um, uh, behind me, but it, he he is a, um, a a prophet from the Australian context, an Aboriginal man who in the 1930s, uh, this is 30 years um, before Aboriginal people will be given the right to vote and actually be classified as something other than flora and fauna, an Aboriginal pastor who was holding protests in Australia against the Nazis in the 1930s when people weren't even aware where this was going. Um, as as you're lifting up, there's so many things, that I, like um, I, I could listen to you and so many questions go, go off for me um, as I listen to you, Reggie. One uh, question I, I want to go is that question around had Bonhoeffer gone and spent time with Gandhi? How, how could have things gone different? Mm. Another question is what you named in terms of control and how um, uh, white supremacist Christianity, um, uh, which he is obviously uh, wrestling with, how um, uh, it, its ways of, of working and whether that's what you're getting at and mentioning control um, still needs um, or values the, the nation state over real bodies. Um, uh, real Jewish people and 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 those kind of um, uh, complexities, uh, but also uh, that question of community and what does it mean um, uh, for it not to be an individual journey? Things that come up for me since I'm listing them, um, Mark Thesson Nation's kind of Bonhoeffer the assassin. I'd love to hear your kind of take on. Um, uh, his work there and um, without going into too much uh, detail I was recently asked to leave a theological program that they had invited me to contribute to because I was publicly arguing with the person who uh, led it in front of the young pastors who are a part of this formation program uh, that your work and actually naming that um, we have to talk about white supremacy if we're going to talk about Bonhoeffer's legacy uh, because that's literally the struggle that he finds himself and uh, they they disagreed and I was asked to leave. They're the kind of questions that are circling for me, but I know we've got a limited time. Drew, I'd love to hear like what things are on top um, uh, uh, for you and then, Reggie, you're, you're welcome to play with and pick up any of those pieces that you want to with the time that we have left. Sure, sure. Uh, Drew, for you, are there, are there particular things? I mean, I, I I just find fascinating the whole conversation around the control. I mean, that's just a different way of framing it. Yes. I haven't heard anybody talk about, but I mean, it just makes sense once you say it. And yeah. it's just like, it's just there. You can't unsee it now, right? In terms of thinking yeah. about like Bonhoeffer's decision. And in some ways, it's the social imagination that he's working out of that seems to limit his imagination for how he could respond in this moment and what is going to drive him to act, right? Um, so that's really fascinating. I'm also, um, which is going way, way back, but I was, I just was captured by your language when you talk about Harriet Tubman, mm -hmm. only because I've been playing with, just thinking a lot about Jesus in the language of theft. I mean, think about the Gospel of Mark, yes. plundering the strong man, right? So anyway, yeah. when you mentioned yeah. uh, Harriet Tubman, that just came into my mind also as a connection. Not necessarily that you need to go there, because I actually really um, like some of the things that Jared brought up around the control and things like that and some of the other questions. I certainly would be curious about your take on um, um, Bonhoeffer the Assassin, right? That text, um, mm. um, I know that there was a, I was present when, um, which I think you were there too at AAR 
when they presented. And I know they got grilled pretty hard at, uh, for AR. So I'd be certainly curious to hear your thoughts on that text. Certainly as a much more Bonhoeffer scholar than I am. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, uh, so if you turn over the book, you see my name is on the back of it. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I endorsed it. Um, Mark, uh, Mark was a friend of Glenn's. Yeah. Glenn, um, Glenn and I were sitting in Waco, Texas at Truett Seminary, Seminary for Baylor. And I was presenting a fest trip that David Gushy and I had edited for Glenn. I was pre presenting this to him. And Glenn was talking about endorsing Mark's book. And I thought, you're going to endorse it? Really? He said, yeah, he's a friend of mine. And so I, as, so I, so then I read, because Mark had asked me to endorse it. I read, uh, um, as I was reading through it, the first portion of it takes his claims towards pacifism very seriously. Theology uh, and his claims about pacifism are taken really seriously. I, thought, I, I can get with that. I can get with that. The claims that he understands Bonhoeffer's intent better than Betka, I think, are silly. <laughs> let's just put it let's just put it there yeah, okay <laughs> i think that's i just think that's silly that mm -hmm. here you are all these years after the church struggle after the demise of hitler's germany um and you can see this clearer than what becca was claiming in his biography i think it's silly i just think it's silly um, and nobody says that Bonhoeffer was an assassin. No one has said that Bonhoeffer was an assassin. Look, the title is silly. Bonhoeffer was in prison. He was a part of a large tyrannicide, effort yeah. tyrannicide. So to reduce it to the claims of assassination or, mur or even, um, uh, well, assassination, to reduce it to, the, uh, to kill Hitler is, a, is reducing that broad thing far to is to minimize it to really make it something much more small and insignificant than it actually was if you go to the uh, to resistance museum at the um the bindler block museum in berlin and there's a wall where you see all of the players who were involved bonhoeffer's pick dietrich's picture is not even up there klaus's picture is up there mm. but there are hundreds of people who were involved in this effort at um, it's uh, changing the government. It includes tyrannicide, mm. but no one said that Bonhoeffer was an assassin. That's just silly. And and, and yet, uh, Reggie. And, and the, oh, go ahead. Oh no, I was just. Uh, I don't want to uh, lose anything. Yeah, go ahead. I, I wonder if the title though responds to the Eric Metaxas kind of um, in, in Australia, in the same way that Obama chose Niebuhr as his theologian, um, which I find fascinating. Uh, yeah. uh, in Australia, our Prime Minister, um, Kevin Rudd, uh, he chose Bonhoeffer because he was able to say high Christian ideals, just like Niebuhr, but real polity at the same time. Uh, so, yes, the same uh, now, but at the same time, well, I you know, we, we've, we've got to run a nation. Sometimes and we got to kill some people. Exactly. Well, and this is what I find really interesting. Like, as a Prime Minister, leader of a nation, uh, uh, seeking to be a Christian, um, the, the choice of Bonhoeffer or the choice of Niebuhr are very convenient because um, that Western trajectory of uh, uh, Jesus as some Gnostic figure that gives us high ideals for morality 
uh, but then there's the actual business of rolling up our sleeves and um, leading nation states, um, uh, nation states that were founded upon stealing, killing and destroying, literally the works of the devil. Like it, it's, um, this is a way that Bonhoeffer gets drawn upon and the, the current way in terms of uh, Metaxas's uh, Bonhoeffer, which is used for like a, a cheerleader for Trump and voting for Trump and a moral imagination right. that uh, basically anything but Trump is the equivalent of the Nazis, which is like just mind-blowing for any of us elsewhere in the world looking on going, what the hell? Like, Well, Metaxas is not a theologian. Metaxas actually doesn't know Bonhoeffer. He's a biographer. Yeah. Um, ask him to describe what Bonhoeffer means by stuff for certain. You're not going to get much uh, because he's not following that so much. That Bonhoeffer is developing a Christian concept of person in relationship to the history of European um, um, continent philosophy. Yes. Um, and the epistemological engagement with personhood as opposed to what Bonhoeffer is doing is a sociological and Christian engagement with personhood. That's mm -hmm. not going to happen with somebody like Metaxas. Um, you're going to get somebody who dies for his principles and his ideals, which right. is a gross misinterpretation of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He would say nothing like that. Right. Yeah. He would say nothing like that. But um, and again, now it's important what you had said earlier. Why it's I am the I am one who is going to say as well on soapbox that unless you recognize the history and the problem of white supremacy, you don't understand what's going on there. Yes. Yeah. You're not going to get it. Yeah. Um, and Bonhoeffer himself um, is not completely clean from that. Right. He's right. not clean from that. But Susanna Heschel so yes. very well points out that group that met at Bartburg Castle to hand to the Jewish, I mean, to the German people a Christianity that is adequate, sufficient to their superior Aryan status is de-racializing the scripture. Yeah. De-Judaizing the scripture. Yeah. Wiping away all Jewishness as part of the gospel because Jesus is for them an Aryan figure. Yeah. It's a white, it is what George Fredrickson, this historian of race, says one of the three overtly racist regimes in the 20th century that that are the physical, political manifestations of the direction of that ideology since its inception in the West. That's what Germany is. Yes. And Bonhoeffer is fighting for the church, fighting against white supremacy, um, as somebody who is still struggling with its, the way it's configured his own identity. And that's what kills him. Yes. I gave a, I gave a, um, I spoke in chapel at Westmont College um, in February. And I structured this thing around the way that I did this plenary session for, the, for a Bonhoeffer group in, in um, South Africa. Oh, I so wish I was going to be. I thought I was going to be there. Oh, yeah, with you, you were, oh. yeah, that's right. You were going to be there. Yeah, you were. You were. You should. You were going to be there. I taught the talk there. I said was um, I'm reading Bonhoeffer at the door of no return. Mm. Door of no return. The last. I mean, because this, this figuratively is a space where Africans leave the soil, African soil, right. head into the Middle Passage, come into the New World as as property, no longer as people, mm. and its ideology. So the, when they leave that, when they head out that door, no, no return, they go bringing an ideology that's attached to their bodies at that moment. Yes. That ideology um, is what sets something nefarious in motion in the entire in the Western world entirely. That 
awful ideology um, is uh, is legitimizing turning human people into possessions. And we exist right now in what it left behind when you turn people into possessions. What Christina mm-hmm. Sharp calls the weight, what 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 Sadia Hartman calls slavery's afterlives. Wow. Um, it's it's to understand um, Bonhoeffer's death. You need to ask the question: not who killed him, but what killed him. That's what right. killed Bonhoeffer? I'm borrowing mm-hmm. from Kelly Brown Douglas in her, in yes. her book "Stand Your Ground." Yes. What killed Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Right. It's the ideology that was attached to those bodies when they left the door of no return. And wow. if you can't, if you don't see that, you're not getting a full picture of what was happening in that mm-hmm. moment. This is why um, white, white scholars struggle with this kind of stuff. They, this kind of thing, they can look over the overtly racist regime mm-hmm. and talk about Hegel, talk about Heidegger, talk about Kant, talk about Barth, talk about Kierkegaard, and the way Bonhoeffer reads these people. What the hell does that matter? He's trying to make sense yeah. of his <laughs> life. Yes. And um, and Christianity in the context of an overtly racist regime. Yeah, that's right. And they will not make headway, any put any significant headway. Heidegger can't help with that. <laughs> Heidegger cannot help with that, my friend. Heidegger will help you with that. Oh, no, he was a Nazi himself. Yep. So yeah. So asking the question, who you're gonna you're gonna make some traction. You're gonna ask the question, what killed Bob? Yes. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, Reggie, I'm, I'm, I'm haunted by the quote from Elie Wiesel, who, uh, when he talks about who was working in the gas chambers, and he says mm. that they were all Christian. And yeah. for, for for somebody whose um, ancestors yeah. uh, were Jewish, um, and um, particularly since um, the founding of the modern nation state, that took the name. Israel. Uh, I've literally had experiences where I've been um, at uh, checkpoints in um, Israel-Palestine where um, young uh, dark-skinned Israelis have held uh, guns at me at at checkpoints and then uh, searched me and and taken me away and confined me for a number of hours. How Mm. how, um, how the Jews became white is a very recent story mm-hmm. and how it connects to the modern nation state of Israel and their own Constantinian moment uh, going from mm-hmm. a diaspora never having power to, to suddenly um, uh, being uh, the second greatest uh, nuclear power in the world um, and mm-hmm. what that means for Palestinian lives. And um, uh, I think of um, uh, El Hayek, that um, young uh, Palestinian uh, man who was part of a recent Black Lives Matter uh, protest um, outside of Bethlehem and with his arms raised, he has an intellectual disability, he was shot by Israeli soldiers. And the complexities yeah. of how, um, uh, what it means for um, uh, Jews to suddenly, uh, b- because uh, whiteness isn't about skin colour, it's about coercive power. Um, yeah. And it's about a story which um, gives up identities. Um, in, in this moment where there are those complexities, where um, uh, some of us find it much easier than others to participate in um, the myth of whiteness and continue these stories that Bonhoeffer was wrestling in, as a scholar, uh, 
what kind of um, words of wisdom, um, advice, encouragement, um, correction uh, would you have for those of us who can easily disappear and erase um, our ancestors uh, to participate in the oppression of others, particularly those of us who want to then have Jesus on our lips as we sing praise? Yeah, yeah, that's such a good question. Yeah, it's such a good question, and it's a challenging one. You just raised some other very important content to discuss, too, with the nation-state of Israel mm-hmm. um, and the way whiteness works in that structure, in that oh. space, the way whiteness is white, whiteness is a work in that space. Yeah, I was a part of a program that we spent two summers over there, um, and I, I'm tr- I remember pushing my... Uh, my friends over there in Jerusalem on this very subject, on this very topic. It's a really complex one. Because on the one hand, you got the story of six million and the European destruction of Jewry. You know? On the other hand, I mean you got the 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 demands for safety. You know, and and in a space that's their own, on the land that they have um uh, they have their stories about about their origins and so forth. Hidden in that narrative is nation states in Europe offloading their anti-Semitism on the Middle East. Yes. Yep. You know, wanting to reroute a better image of the practice of whiteness in the West through a more benevolent engagement with that community Mm. and offloading it in that space. So then what does this nation state become? This nation state then becomes maybe an inflection of a better perspective of ourselves as white people mm-hmm. in the Western mm-hmm. world, you know? Um, and, and, and it's, you, you have a, a reinforced practice of white sovereignty yeah. by not treating those beneath us in a negative way, but treating them beneath those people beneath us in a, in a, in a good way. Yeah, uh, Reggie, it's you know? it's the story that you told of playing um, basketball in Australia and uh, witnessing the racism against First Nation Aboriginal people here, while at the yeah. same time um, being related to as an African American in a very racialized way, but it's as a an, an idol, not a demon. <laughs> yeah, that was a trip. That was a trip. But it's How it's a living talk to me like that. You gotta talk to, you gotta talk about the Aboriginals to me, yeah. like that. Yeah. Do you not see the body you're talking to? Yeah. <laughs> that was a trip. Yeah. Wow. But because black yeah. in Australia, and this is why here we can't import terms like uh, BIPOC, uh, because uh, the B and the I are most often the same people. Like, um, <laughs> like, and people people miss that but that metaphor for your experience here in Australia Reggie um yeah. that's exactly what happened I mean Eurovision has Israel at, like compete in it mind you it also has Australia compete in it what does it say about what Europe is that like the, a nation state in the southern hemisphere and a nation state in the middle of what is referred to as the Middle East um that that north tip of Africa um, that used to be referred to as Palestine and is now Palestinian territories and Israel is part of a European singing contest. That in itself says something right. about That's how whiteness works. Right. That's yeah. pretty wild. 
Uh, I had a, I remember getting into it with a rabbi while I was over there. That was that was a trip. That was really a trip. I said yeah. uh, I had been invited over there by some Arab uh, Christians, some Palestinian Christians, some, yeah. Arab, some Arab Israeli Christians too. Um, I didn't come over there with them. I came over there and I came over with a different group. And um, as he was making this, we were having this conversation in his backyard. He was saying these interesting things, interesting things. <laughs> and I remember having this conversation. I remember saying to him, you know, I was initially invited over here by some Palestinian Christians. Um, and you know, black people in the United States identify more with them than they do with Israelis here. Mm. What do I go, what do I tell the folks, the, the black folks in the community that is my home when I go back and talk to me about this conversation we're having? And this this rabbi said to me, first of all, I question the motives of those Palestinians who brought you here. Question the motives. I mean, this is was this this was his exact word. These were exact exact yeah. words. Question them motives. They, whatever their motives, let's just think that, let's just assume that their motives are pure, he says. Let's assume their motives are pure. They share responsibility in bringing us all to the table of peace talks. They should be a part of that. They, they share the responsibility for bringing us all to the table of peace. I came back to them later about that claim because Israel is a nuclear power. That's and they right. have the equivalent of sticks and rocks. <laughs> you know, right? Um, so, so um, you, you do have a little bit of more responsibility about that. And then he said, um, "Everybody else, everybody knows that Israel is colorblind." <laughs> so this is the language that white supremacy uses. Everybody wow. knows that Israel is colorblind. Wow, we don't see color here. Yeah, That's and I, I mean, I said to him, his response to me was his response was to the claim. That I made about people in the United States, black people in the United States, seeing Israelis as Middle Eastern white folk. Right. Yeah. And he reinforced it yep. <laughs> by saying, "Yeah, we're colorblind." Okay. Colorblind. Right. Yeah. You don't get the irony yeah, right. <laughs> of the words right. you just said. But right. if you go to any of the checkpoints where uh, there has been suicide bombing happen, uh, you don't find um, those with Russian Jewish ancestry we're not manning those checkpoints. What you find is Ethiopian Jews. Yes. Right. What, what does that say about how race works in that nation state? Right. Oh, yeah. And I forget the name of the people. I keep forgetting the name of this group that are often in military uniform as well. When I was, the last time I was there, Drew, I think Drew, I think that's the name of the Drew, Drew, Drew people. Uh, Druids? I can't remember the Druze, yeah, I think that was the name, but they are people. They're they're darker skinned people as well, um, and they're in they're they're military in Israel. They're not Jewish. Mm. They're like a they're um, they're a group that, as I was told, there, as somebody who I don't really trust very well, but um, they take citizenship in the country that they are a part of very seriously, and they join the military. Mm. But when men, um, so one of the last shootings that happened there, I mean, this was a shooting that happened when I was there. Mm. Some, um, some, Ar some um, Arab Muslims, some Muslims came down from the Noble Sanctuary and shot a couple of officers. And they were these people. So this person who was telling me this was saying, because they're not Jewish and they're dark-skinned, um, Israeli people love them. Mm -hmm. 
told anybody that would claim that there's racism here is stupid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have you met my black friends? Exactly. We love our darkies. We love our darkies. Smile. <laughs> yeah. The contented Negroes. Uh, Reggie, I, I, I kid you not. And I've loved this. And um, uh, this is just a sign that we will have you back anytime at any length to talk about anything. Like, um, okay. we, we love your work and witness. Um, uh, 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 personally, I, I'm so indebted to you. And um, our initial meeting lives long as a, as a, a mythic story in my life now that I embarrassingly, <laughs> embarrassingly He's told me tell. a couple of times this story. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and, and we'll leave it for, for another time. But just to, again, highlight um, how... Uh, what we're talking about is um, a uh, powerful European nation project to build an identity that unifies them for the, the stealing, the killing and the destroying, the, the stealing of land, the killing of people and the destroying of cultures. Um, part of after seven, eight hours of being detained, so I worked in, um, I worked for World Vision Middle East, Eastern Europe, so the JWG officers, because we couldn't call it World Vision Palestine, nor could we call it World Vision Israel, so it was World Vision uh, Jerusalem, West Bank, Gaza. Um, uh, I was uh, d detained uh, for seven, eight hours uh, one time, and um, after being uh, questioned a, a number of times about why I was there, why, why I was staying in the Palestinian territories, um, how come I was staying with Palestinians, how come I was speaking um, uh, to, to Arab Christians, or all this kind of stuff, um, uh, one of the final people to interview me uh, put this to me, and they said, um, "Your name is Yered Saul, which is just the pronunciation. So Saul's my middle name; it's my mum's maiden name. Um, uh. And uh, they're like, "So you're Jewish?" And I said, "Well, I, I have Jewish ancestors, but uh, I'm a Christian." And they said, "You know, you qualify for citizenship. Why don't you stop all this and just become a citizen of Israel?" Then wow. after detaining me and questioning me, they said, imagine the work that you could do if you were a citizen, though. Wow. Again, how this works of um, uh, coercive power and identity and access and, and how easy it is um, uh, for certain things to be erased if you get with the program. What I heard you naming by the word control in terms of Bonhoeffer is him wrestling with those realities of what is it yeah. that, um, well, maybe there's a more effective way. Maybe if I get citizenship, I can actually advocate more effectively. That is, that is only something that very few people have access to. And what that does, yeah. the way you think through different issues theologically, um, uh, because uh, um, the, this powerful of the hated Samaritan or as um, uh, Dr. Stason would put it, the, the compassionate um, Samaritan, um, it's not a story of all Samaritan lives matter. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it's actually right. a story of the hated other who dares the proximity to the broken, bleeding bodies um, to not merely... Um, uh, are you a neighbour to the person, uh, but are you a neighbour of the person? And that's a different question. Mm -hmm. that, that really is a, a different mm -hmm. imagination. Reggie, you've been yeah. so generous with your time. Can we squeeze in the Gandhi question before you go? <laughs> okay. All right. 
let's make it fit. <laughs> what, uh, what about the kind of question? Remind me. Well, um, how do you think uh, Bonhoeffer's oh, experience? What would have happened if he had gone to Gandhi? Yeah. Yeah. As a, a decolonized reading of uh, the life of Jesus, which doesn't run through Western theological paradigms, but instead takes his humanity so seriously that it's looking at the Sermon on the Mount as uh, the practice for liberation from British imperialism. Um, how do you think Bonhoeffer would have walked away from that experience? So, so um, he got accepted into Gandhi's ashram before he wrote Cost of Discipleship, where he wrote Discipleship mm. in German. It's just Nachfolge, Discipleship. Um, what we have for Nachfolge, what we have for Discipleship is what he wrote um, while at Finkenwalde instead of being with Gandhi. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's hold on to that. Gandhi understood the Sermon on the Mount as providing concrete guidance in the context of resistance. Mm -hmm. Bonhoeffer's read of the Sermon on the Mount is what we may describe as an ethics of renunciation. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Of giving up. It's funny, some would say, one person I know who, um, who would say that, who's criticized that read, say that it's not just all about giving up. It's a recognition that you find your life when you lose it. But it doesn't offer any concrete guidance for resistance to the state. That's right. It's renunciation. Yeah. Right. So um, he was he was specifically going to look for help like that. Yeah. He didn't get it. Yeah. Who knows what kind of resistance he would have been able to offer. But it's also true that by the time 1938 rolls around, 1937, the discipleship was published in 37. By that time, in 38, 39, the government had become a juggernaut of evil. They had lots of support and they had lots of, they were, they were rolling towards war in 39. The time for change really was early when he was perceived as way too radical. Like 33, 34. Christians making a stink were getting, having their voices heard at that time. Yeah, but the time to become this big old juggernaut, I don't know what kind of difference. It's gonna make. I, I just don't know. I, that that's a that's a hypothetical. I just don't know. Um, you know, I mean, depending on where you are in the Western world, Gandhi is side eyed too. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, right. yeah. Gandhi's giving a side eye too. So, I mean, what was his actual perception of the British Empire right. and the people who were crushed by it? People are some people, some folks are Sinai and Gandhi too. But what what um was true though between the link between he and Bonhoeffer, we we have a letter that Gandhi wrote to him in the 17 volumes of the BB that Dietrich Bonhoeffer works. Um, but we don't have the letter that Bonhoeffer wrote to Gandhi. Right. Um, I have that letter now. I do have that letter. Oh. Um, we got a copy of that. And in that letter, some things that are interesting that he says. One, um, I mean, he's, 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 he's clearly struggling with the fact that some of his friends are saying, why are you looking to Gandhi? Gandhi's not even Christian. Right. And he's struggling with this, which is an interesting thing, too. Um, oh, where'd he go? He, he just dropped out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can finish your thought, and then we can wrap up. Yeah. So he's, this is one thing he's struggling with. Oh, here he comes. 
the other one, um, there's another, the other thing struck, I was just saying, um, Jared, that he struggled with the fact that Gandhi wasn't Christian. I mean, he's, he's, he addresses that in the letter. The other one is that he went to New York looking for something specifically, he says, and he didn't find it. Mm-hmm. Now, when this letter was read to me, the person who was reading it saying, and at this moment, we have Reggie Williams in the room. This may be upsetting for him. Why would you think that I'm going to assume that Bonhoeffer actually found content to reform Western Christianity in Harlem? <laughs> They're not looking to reform Christianity. That's a yeah. whole different kind of faith expression. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay, Bonhoeffer is not going to find the tools to make Christianity great in Germany <laughs> in Harlem, from Harlem. He's not yeah. going to find that there. What he right. finds in Harlem, first of all, helped him become a Christian. Secondly, troubled him when he goes back and he sees race all over the place within Christianity in Germany. Right. It troubled him. Yeah. So that's the first, that's the second thing. He's disturbed. And most importantly, because the Christianity that's present in Germany is insufficient for this problem that it's facing. Right. It's insufficient for its most significant problem that it's faced in his lifetime. And he needs help. Mm. That's what he was going to Germany for. I mean, to, to, to India for. And in the United States, black and white Christ um, don't have any common worship, as he says. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem for him. Mm. The black Christ is brought out against the white Christ. Mm. It's, it, but it is the only Christianity that's there. But he would like to have this healed, reformed, this rift. And he's looking for help to do that. Wow. But as Susanna Heschel tells us, you're not gonna, you don't reform the white Christ. Yes. Right. The Aryan Jesus is not a figure that you want to keep around. Yeah. That's a demon to be cast out. Come on. It's really good. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't reform that. Yeah. Um, and that may be one of the problems that kept him from being able to deliver on the, on the solution that he saw that was needed there. Yeah. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.